Hello and welcome to On Resistance. We are a horizontal radio collective agitating the airwaves. Today I will be joined with special guests who will be providing a Skillshare for us on the surveillance state. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Hu Manis. Thank you for joining us. Do you think that there is a safe way to participate with Facebook? Because you said you're still on it. The way that I'm participating on it, I mean, the fact that I'm, I'm engaged in community organizing, mm-hmm. you know, everything is constitutionally legal. And I'm not engaging in any underground resistance. Uh-huh. And at the moment, as far as I know, they're not coming to knock on my door and take me away. I'm not really taking any crazy precautions when it comes to Facebook. Uh-huh. I do have my apprehensions, but in terms of using it safely, it really just depends on your situation, what it is that you're doing, and what your concerns are. It's becoming more accessible for the government just to have like backdoor access through Facebook and it seems as though NSA and and now this new cyber agency that was just created are basically monitoring everyone so is it even the radicals or like the scary anarchists that they're going after or is it everyone who's using Facebook well I mean in terms of government surveillance it's complete and total Mm -hmm. Um, The NSA is essentially intercepting every email, every text message, every phone call, every (coughs) Facebook update, and every tweet that you put out there. The NSA's goal is complete and total information awareness. So they're not necessarily looking at every piece and every bit. They're just throwing it away for future purposes essentially for future crime. So the way they see it is at one point or another, there's going to be individuals that they're going to see, of, that they're going to consider of interest. And when they do, they're going to go back in time with the masses of information that they're collecting and see if there's anything else that they could get on them. When you're using Facebook, even before this legislation, mm-hmm. uh, like CISA and every other cyber bill that's going into Congress, they had access to all this information. But... In terms of is it safe to use, there's something that's called threat modeling. And threat modeling is something that individuals need to do in order to know what's the best way to protect themselves, whether they should be using social media or not, you know, whether they should be using phones or not. It really depends on what your threat is and what your threat model looks like. Can you go more into what you mean by threat modeling? Yeah, well, threat modeling helps determine what solutions work for you when it comes to communication. So keep yourself safe online or using phones. When you conduct a threat model assessment, there's like five main questions that you want to ask yourself. And the questions are, what do you want to protect? Is it that you're trying to protect your emails? Are you trying to protect your text messages? Are you trying to protect your phone calls? Who do you want to protect it from? How likely is it that you'll need to protect it? How bad are the consequences if you fail to protect it? And how much trouble are you willing to go through in order to try to prevent, in this case, the government from accessing your information? So those are the five main questions that you need to ask yourself in order to best determine what your threat is and how you can best go about protecting yourself. What are your thoughts on the apathy surrounding people practicing their own personal cybersecurity? Some of the major reasons that I believe that people, I guess, aren't as active or seem to be as concerned about surveillance 
because it's affecting everybody. It doesn't matter if you're engaged in resistance in community organizing or if you're just someone who really doesn't care about anything. The reason really is, one, it's it doesn't seem easily accessible. Even though it's a simple click away, you know, you just go to your app store and you download these apps um, that could ensure things like encrypted text messaging or encrypted phone calls. In order for people to even find out that the, these apps exist, they would have to do the research in the first place. And most people don't do this type of research. And then second, I would say, is that people have never seen either surveillance or hacking in action. Mm. And I think when you actually see it, it is one of those things that just sends chills down your spine. Mm. I mean, for me, the first thing that really drove the message home about surveillance was in a meeting that I was in because I do a lot of hacking. Hacking isn't necessarily illegal. If you hack your own devices, if you hack your own Wi-Fi at home, you know, things like that, that's perfectly legal. If it's consented upon, it's legal. Mm -hmm. You know, it's when you access other people's stuff without their permission that it becomes illegal. It was in this meeting where this hackers meeting that I was at and this individual basically showed me how he could hack my computer, access the webcam, take a snapshot. When he did that, it was like, uh, (laughs) I don't know, holy (laughs) That, that, That was my first introduction. That was probably like two years ago. You know, Mm -hmm. when I saw that. And I mean, personally for me, I I have been interested in things like hacking and computer programming since I was like, I don't know if I was like 11 or 12 years old. Somehow I stumbled upon it. I've kind of been interested ever since. Yeah. I've never fully pursued it until recently. And now that I have, I've been learning so much. But things like surveillance, things like being hacked. It's not something you see at all. It's not something you notice. It's I, I think that there's this feeling of I'm using my phone, I'm using my laptop, and the only one that can see what I see mm-hmm. is me. The only one that has access to my files or my photos or my camera is me. I think that if people were to actually see that happen to them, then they would really start to care because it's with people's homes, nobody just is okay with someone peeking through their window or opening their door and looking inside. It's the reason why people put locks on their doors. (laughs) So is there anything that you can look out for? Well, the thing with that is that, let's see, it's it's really hard to know when it's that you've been hacked or that there's just a bug in your app or your Mm -hmm. phone, Um, because that's really, really likely. I mean, there is an infinite amount of bugs in the infinite amount of apps that there's out there. Um, So any one of those things could be crashing your phone, could be crashing your app, could be slowing it down. It's really a number of things that could be affecting that. So Uh just from looking at it, there are things that you could do, but such as using antiviruses and stuff like that. But those aren't like 100% reliable. Like I said, in a lot of the, the work that I've been doing surrounding hacking, there's like methodical ways that you could go around evading things like antivirus. So... It's a solution, but it's not a perfect solution. Mm. Actually, a segue is perfect to my next question. What are some other accessible ways that people can protect themselves? Well, there's different things that people can use, I guess, um, for communications. So if you're trying to secure voice calls, then 
there's two different apps for iPhone and Android. For Android, it's known as Redphone and is by Open Whisper Systems. And Open Whisper Systems is essentially the person, or not the person, the group leading the way for encrypting communications. Mm -hmm. um, so they have Redphone for Android, and for iPhone, they have Signal. Mm -hmm. So both Android and iPhone users can encrypt their their phone calls. And these apps actually work with each other. Uh -huh. So the only way that you're going to have an encrypted call, though, is if the other individual has the app as well. Mm. You know, you can't be encrypted and then have them, ha have the other person not be encrypted, then the communication's not going to work. Okay. But as long as you and the other individual are encrypted, then that's an added layer of security. Same thing for texting. For texting, there's text secure. Mm -hmm. And for iPhone, it's signal. Are these free? Yeah, they're free. Cool. They're free apps. For email, it's not yet as easy as just installing an app and it's ready to go. There's something called PGP, which people can use for email. Mm -hmm. It's a little more work, but there's guides online on how to set that up. And the best place that I could point people to is the EFF has a, a guide. And the EFF is the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and it's called the Surveillance Self-Defense Guide. And so if people Google the Electronic Frontiers Foundation's Surveillance Self-Defense, they'll find this tutorial. And it actually goes into a lot of the stuff that I'm discussing, such as threat modeling, um, how can you secure text messages, emails, etc., how to be safe on social media and stuff like that. A lot of times Tor is also recommended. What are your thoughts on Tor? Well, there's been a lot of, I guess... Up and also, can you explain what Tor is? Because I didn't, sorry. Okay, yeah. Tor is supposed to be a secure way of using the internet, I guess, for short. And so what it allows people to do is things like circumvent censorship from governments, especially, I guess you could say, in more repressive regimes where they actually actively censor websites and stuff like that. It allows people to get around that censorship. But what it also does is help with surveillance. And the way that it does that is essentially it encrypts your communications and it jumps around these things called nodes around the world. And it makes your location look like you're in Russia or you're in Germany or you're even somewhere else in the United States. So that's kind of like the protections that it's supposed to give. Now, the thing about Tor is that it's had, I guess, a lot of up and downs lately. A lot of things that have been making people question its security. And some of those concerns are valid. But as of right now, I would say just like with anything else electronic, you don't see it as 100% safeguard against surveillance or being targeted. It's just kind of like this barrier that makes it that much more difficult to be targeted. Mm -hmm. So would you recommend that anyone on the internet should be using Tor? I guess it, it really depends what it is that you as an individual are doing. So if you're, say, just a activist or community organizer, and you just don't want the government to know what you're doing, at least not so easily, because like I said, unless you're being specifically targeted, then all they're doing is collecting information. 
and something like Tor would actually help. So if all you're doing is doing research, you're you're looking things up online, then sure, use it at home. If you feel a little uncomfortable that maybe at a certain point Tor is going to fail, mm-hmm. you know, and you won't know that it's failing because it's just by fail, I mean that the government found a way around Tor and was able to access your information, then you could use Tor on top of, say, being at a cafe. Mm -hmm. Um, So using the cafe's public Wi-Fi, and then so it's not your home, it's not your IP, and now you have Tor on top of that. So if that fails, well, it leads to the cafe, and you're going to have hundreds if not thousands of customers going through there. So that's another way of masking yourself. What would you consider a good online security culture to practice? I would say that if you wouldn't say it to the feds, don't say it online. <laughs> so, I mean, there's things that people are okay w- with saying at protests. So that means that there are, there's things that aren't illegal. So if it's not illegal, it's not illegal to share a news article. It's not illegal to share, you know, a lot of this stuff. So that's okay. But don't be discussing certain things that could land you in jail because they will. You know, you're, the DEA has actually been using things like Instagram and Facebook to bust people, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm not sure if they have started using that against activists here in the United States. Mm-hmm. You know, at least that's not the the reason they're giving for certain political arrests that have happened throughout the country. You know, they're giving other reasons. They're definitely watching that. A good example to to give in terms of how actively they're watching social media and key individuals is that there's this computer security researcher a few days ago was arrested. Um, I think it was by, or not arrested, he was detained mm-hmm. by, I think it was Homeland Security. Um, and essentially he does a lot of work around vulnerabilities and he's done a lot of work around security vulnerabilities in airplanes. Some stuff came up about airplanes and he tweeted a joke about, oh, they should, you know, really check this thing out about, I mean, he said something really technical, very specific to some planes. Yeah. You know, and the stuff that he had prior knowledge of. Yeah. And when his plane landed, and given that this was like a really short flight, so it's not like, oh, this happened a few days ago, and now we're going after him. Yeah. He tweeted while he was midair. When his plane landed, there was federal agents waiting for him at the gate, and they came to get him. And they took him to interrogate him. That shows that they're actually actively watching social media. So he didn't say anything illegal. I guess they weren't able to charge him with anything. But they still detained him. They still questioned him. Yeah, basically don't be saying anything that you wouldn't say to the feds. What does internet usage look like under fascism? I mean, I guess the answer would be like what it looks like now if you also think this is fascism. We go based off of historical examples of what has been termed fascism, then we're definitely there. Because surveillance is complete and total. If you look at Soviet Union before the fall of the Berlin Wall and all that, it was East Germany where the Stasi existed. And they were considered to be the most fascist and have the biggest amount of surveillance in place. So essentially something like one out of four people were under surveillance or something like that. Mm -hmm. So it was like 25% of the population. And the United States and a bunch of other nations said that it's outright fascism, right? Well, what the NSA is doing is not one out of four. It is 
total. It is everyone. It, it is every single individual. They're con collecting every single piece of information about everyone's life. So if that is what we're going to use to measure whether something is fascism or not, then yeah, we're definitely there. And we're far and above it. Mm. Um, we're not yet at a point where they're actively using it against us, but they're definitely laying the groundwork and the foundation to essentially do whatever it is that they please. If they want to target individuals, they're going to be able to do it. The moment that they don't start liking something, that certain individuals start becoming real threats, then they will know who they're communicating with, they will know who their network is, they will know who their family members are, they will know where they're located, they will know essentially more about them than they know about themselves. We were talking before about the NSA, and you were telling me something about Tau. Um, can you explain what that is? The NSA, the, which is the National Security Agency, has a unit called Tau, and that's the Tailored Access Operations Unit. Now, this unit is considered to be the NSA's top secret weapon. It maintains its own covert network across the world. It infiltrates computers all over the world. And it also does something that most people, I guess, are just recently finding out. And what it does is that um, when you order a computer or you order a phone or any other electronic device, what the NSA has the capability of doing is actually redirecting the shipment from the company that you ordered it from to one of their own secret warehouses where they will either implant a hardware backdoor or they will put they will implant some software which will also be a backdoor and then they will carefully wrap it back up not sure if they have their own packaging plant as well that says like Amazon or whatever mm -hmm. or Google or Samsung or something like that, but they're able to wrap it up so that it doesn't look it was ever tampered with and they will ship it back and there's really no delay. And so when you receive your device, whether it's your computer or your phone, they now have complete and total access to it. So no real, I guess, remote hacking is necessary since they've already implanted something directly into your phone. And this is being done both domestically and internationally. They have, people know of that, because of leaked documents, people are aware of at least one warehouse in Texas. And it's certain that they have them um, located um, throughout the United States. Does that mean that Amazon or wherever you're shipping from, are they in on it or are they intercepting it from them and they don't even know? As far as we know, people like Amazon, these companies don't really know because they're actually even targeting companies themselves. So they're diverting the shipments that, say, some some big companies are, what they're receiving. They're mm -hmm. diverting those and putting back doors into stuff like that. Now, is UPS involved? Is uh, the postal service involved? Is FedEx involved? They might be. Mm. I don't know how they're able to divert it without the people that actually ship it um, knowing that it got diverted. So at some point or another, there's definitely someone that is involved. That's terrifying. How do we resist? The thing about being under targeted surveillance as opposed to just the general surveillance that the NSA does is that targeted surveillance 
is more commonly known as hacking. Um, so that requires for an actual individual. Um, the thing about that is that in general, like the NSA does bulk surveillance. And that's something that is done by software. And what it does is that it just watches as traffic goes by and telephone networks and internet networks, and it just gets them, stores it away at data centers. There's no real human involvement. There's no, there's no real human involvement. Now, when it comes to being specifically targeted by the NSA, that's where Tau comes in, the Tau unit. And that actually requires individuals, like actual people, to target you. So that's really expensive. They don't have an infinite amount of people to watch the millions and millions of individuals. So if they're going to be rerouting your packages because you're someone that is of interest, then the simple solution is don't order things online. Go to a major store where thousands, if not hundreds of people shop at. You know, So just buy your device there. Don't order things online. Uh, that's one of the simplest things that you could do in order to keep yourself from being a victim of a hardware implant. Can you tell us who Jeremy Hammond is and what we can learn from him? Okay, so Jeremy Hammond is actually a longtime community organizer. He's based from Chicago. Jeremy Hammond is an anarchist. He's been doing work since the early 2000s at least, and he is also a hacker. He, well, he was a part of Anonymous, and he was actually part of their more political branch because Anonymous is like this loose collective of hackers from around the world. Some of them are political, some of them are not, you know, and he actually went on to create this loose associated group called LOLSEC. They engaged in a lot of hacking of government targets, such as the Arizona Police Department, the FBI. They hacked this company called Stratfor, which does a lot of, they're a private company that does a lot of intelligence gathering for federal agencies such as the FBI. And they actually did a lot of monitoring of like Occupy and other such movements during that time. So what he did, his biggest hack, I would say, was Stratfor, which revealed that there was such monitoring of, of activists going on. He was actually caught. He was caught after, I'm not sure if it was like a year or so of engaging in hacking companies, but I think that at a certain, in a month or two month period, they were able to get like 50 targets or something like that. So they were like really, really proficient. The, the mistake that he made was that this, this group, Lulsec, uh, they weren't people that knew each other in person. They, they met online. Um, this is usually how anonymous works. They, they're individuals that meet online and they decide to engage in actions together. The mistake that Jeremy Hammond made was he gave away too much personal information about himself to, to the people he was working with. And that wouldn't have been such a big problem if one of the individuals hadn't rolled and turned informant. So what happened was that one of the individuals known as Sabu was approached by the FBI and they, of course, threatened him and he kind of flipped right away and he decided to work for them. 
And so Jeremy Hammond, during this process, had no idea what was going on. He was saying, like, oh, yeah, you know, I've been political for such and such time. I was part of the actions against the RNC back in, like, 2004. You know, he gave, like, very specific things that, I mean, there was, like, thousands of people there. But the thing is, uh, how many well-known anarchist hackers is there in the entire United States? I mean, he's, like, the only one. (laughs) So the, the FBI, what they did was they decided to go after him because they're like, okay, this is the only individual we know who this is, so let's see, let's put a surveillance unit on him. So they put a surveillance unit both on the ground and they were trying to do electronic surveillance as well. And so they, the, I, I'm still not sure of the details because the details are actually really vague on how they caught him, but they did things like they did because he did pretty much everything over tour, um, which kept him safe, but they did what's known as correlation. So Sabu would say, like, hey, you know, Jeremy Hammond is online right now. And when he would say, hey, he's online, the feds who were doing surveillance would see that he would get on tour. They would say, oh, he's off now, and he would be off tour. So they, they couldn't see what he was doing, but they knew from the informant that uh, there was this correlation of events. They used that, I guess, as probable cause to to raid him and arrest him. And then they got his computers, which they were able to retrieve a lot of incriminating content from. And I'm guessing that was in part his failure to not secure himself the way that he should have and the way that he knew he should have. You know, And that's the thing that a lot of times the number one mistake or the number one error is not that encryption failed it's human error people that that's the number one error whether it's organizers or whether it's military or whether it's the CIA there's actually a lot of examples where these people that actually that know what they should be doing have mm-hmm. failed to do so and has compromised them and has led to them either being exposed or captured so pretty much always practice good security culture, especially yeah. if you're going to be doing stuff. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> Big thing about hacking culture and just the journalism around it is that it's pretty white dominated, specifically white male dominated. I would love to hear your thoughts on that. And why do you think that is? Technology in general is white male dominated. If you go into any like computer science or computer engineering department in any university, it will be white dominated. If you go into any company around the United States, it will actually be white dominated. There's kind of this myth that it's a lot of male Asians, but it's actually not. (laughs) Um, A lot of them are not from this country and come to study here, but then they end up going back. So a lot of the people that are in the industry in this country are mostly white males. Why is it like that? I mean, I guess that's a that's a cultural issue, right? Like males are told that they could do engineering, that they could do science, that they could do math, and those are all the things that you have to do when you enter into computer science, a computer science program. So I, I think it deters a lot of people. It also deters just people of color in general, both uh, males and females. 
coming from, you know, a, a brown community, I know that that's not something that we were told that we could do. You know, there was no programs in school. There was no after-school programs. Um, there was no incentive. It's not easily accessible. And uh, it's the reason why our community doesn't engage in it like their community. Because when it comes to their communities, I hear a lot of stories about, like, oh, when I was eight years old, you know, I started programming, you know, when... I was like 10 years old, I built this, this, and that. And it's like, well, how did you even know that you could do that? How did you get access to those resources or into learning how to do that? Obviously, that's something that our communities are lacking. So how does that end up affecting how hacktivism is? Yeah, well, the thing with hacktivism, the state of hacktivism in this country, I would say it's really detached from community organizing as a whole, like grassroots organizing, organizing in communities of color, you know, organizing against police brutality. It's really, really detached. I would say that the only effort that was ever made towards that was by Jeremy Hammond, you know, who has this extensive history. But that was the only case where someone actually targeted the police department. You know, I think they targeted Arizona Police Department. They targeted the BART Police Department. You know, so there was like some solidarity mm-hmm. actions there. But that's one individual who is in the Midwest, right? And now he's incarcerated. Is there anyone in New York? I don't know. Is there anyone on the West Coast? I don't know. So it's really minimal. And in an age where our lives are dictated by technology where we use it on an everyday basis for all our communications, for everything that we need to do from homework to um, our job to where we need to go to using it for things such as filming the police, you know, for using it to disseminate information in regards to resistance or issues that are affecting us. We definitely need to step up our understanding of technology how it's being used against us, how we can use it in resistance, because we can use it in resistance. You don't need to be a hacker. You don't need to be a hacktivist in order to use technology for resistance, but in order for for individuals and communities and organizations to be able to use technology to resist, they need to understand that technology first. So that's going to take some effort in part from a lot of community organizers to if they don't know something, maybe reach out to the few people that do. So did you have any final thoughts before we end the show? Yeah, I guess what I would like for people to really understand is the security culture necessary for the different type of work that folks might want to engage in. There's a big difference in what your security culture should be if you're engaging in underground resistance as opposed to community organizing. Because when you're engaged in underground resistance and you you can define that however you like, some people might define it as engaging in military-style actions, you're going to be perceived as a much greater threat and therefore you will be heavily targeted as an individual or as an organization. Therefore, The precautions that you take are not going to be the same as that of a community organizer. It's not okay to just encrypt your data. It's not okay to just... You don't want to do things like use a phone at all. (laughs) You know, you don't want to... Using phones is just out of the question because 
when you use phones, you get caught. It's just that simple. And there's a lot of research that individuals can do. Um, One thing that they can look into is a talk given at Black Hat Conference. This talk was given last year by this individual on metadata. So what individuals could do is look up this conference, Black Hat, on metadata, and he goes into the case of a CIA group out in Italy who was operating covertly without the Italian government's knowledge. And they kidnapped this individual who turned out had nothing to do with anything. And the Italian government was able to uncover a covert CIA group working within their country. And another case is, I I believe it was either the CIA or Mossad were caught by Hezbollah out in Lebanon and it was because of cell phones. So essentially Mm -hmm. cell phones are something that you don't want to be using if you're engaging in underground resistance. This has all been very informative. So I think something we learn is definitely don't say anything to the feds that you wouldn't say to them directly. Something that me and one of my friends came up was don't let NSA into your bedroom. So little things that you could do is like put a post-it or a sticker over your webcam. That way they can't see you. You know, if you're going to be having organizing meetings, don't bring your cell phone in. They can still listen if you turn it off. You know, don't have any, really any sort of technology around you. If you're going to be having organizing meetings specifically, you know, if you're planning actions. And a really good old security culture method is like if they don't, you know, work on need-to-know basis, If you are doing some things like not everyone needs to know, it's really best to work with as few people as possible. And if you're at an action, mask up, whether you're doing something or not. A good thing that someone actually mentioned, too, was if you're going to, you know, mask up, don't have your cell phone on you because then they can, you know, correlate your location, um, whether or not they actually have a visual of your face. So, yeah, these are all just little tips. If you have some, go ahead and hit us up on some of our social medias and let us know. It's important that we protect ourselves and each other. The surveillance state is growing. So is fascism. And the only way we're going to stop is if we resist. Thank you very much for listening. This has been On Resistance. We're on Fridays, 730. If you're listening to this on the radio, please check out our SoundCloud for the full version of the show. That's soundcloud.com slash on dash resistance. And I really, really encourage everyone to listen to this full show. Share with friends. It's very informative, very important. We protect ourselves. We protect each other. You can check us out on our Twitter at onresistanceLA. Email us at onresistanceradio at gmail.com. Check us out on Facebook, onresistance. And check out our Tumblr on resistanceradio.tumblr.com and our soon-to-be website. I promise it's happening at onresistance.com. I'm Bobby London, and thank you for joining us.